Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Welcome to ID the Future. This is Jay Richards. In today's episode, I'm joined by Guillermo Gonzalez, who is an astronomer at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. He's also taught at Iowa State University, the University of Washington, and Grove City College. And those who've listened to ID the Future for long will recognize him as one of their leading voices in the intelligent design movement. He's also the co-author in 2004 with yours truly of the book, The Privileged Planet, How Our Place in the Cosmos is Designed for Discovery. Guillermo, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Well, in the previous episode, we talked a little bit about what's happened with the evidence over the last 15 years. The book came out in March of 2004. We made a lot of predictions about how unlikely and how rare Earth-like planets we suspected would be. And we've gone from a few hundred extrasolar planets to, I think, now over 5,000 extrasolar planets. Or 4,000. We talked about how the trend has stayed around 4,000, has stayed more or less uh, the same. We've filled in a lot of details, but it still looks like Earth-like planets and systems like our own solar system are, are very much the exception rather than the rule. But I wanted a standalone episode to talk about maybe new evidence, uh, because of course it has been 15 years. It's a sort of renaissance period for astronomy and for astronomical observation and discovery. Do you think, despite the wide-ranging survey of the evidence that we give in the book, have there been things that have happened in the last 15 years that you think are additional confirming evidence for our argument? Sure. Um, first, I, I just want to highlight uh, Michael mm. Denton's recent series of short books on specific topics uh, that we cover in individual chapters in The Privileged Planet. He, he wrote a book, I believe it was called mm-hmm. Firemaker, about the special qualities that humans have that uh, allow them to, to build fires. And not only that, but that the environment permits and that there we're, not, we're not water-dwelling creatures, that we have enough oxygen in the atmosphere and we're about the right size to build fires. And, of course, fires being fundamental to uh, rise of modern technology mm. to working with metallurgy and, 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 and such and refining ores. Uh, and then he wrote another book on the properties of water. Just We have a half a chapter on yeah. that in the book. And Michael Denton just highlights all the um, anomalous properties of water and all the ways that water is so essential for life at multiple levels, from microscopic uh, intracellular reasons all the way up to planetary mm. scale functions uh, for water. And then he uh, has another book more recently on light, yes. uh, the light that we receive from the universe around us and how the atmosphere is transparent to visible light and uh, how we learn so much about the universe around us from that light. And so I'd recommend to uh, the listeners that they haven't already pick up these small books if they want a more expanded, more hmm. detailed uh, accounts of uh, some of the individual chapters that we covered in The Privileged Planet. Yeah, because Denton had written, of course, in, I think it was in 98, his book, Nature's Destiny, which we draw on uh, yes. in detail in The Privileged Planet. And of course, he had years before that written a kind of pre-ID movement book, Evolution of Theory and Crisis, that played a influential role, I know, with Mike Behe and others, and then has, has since actually updated that in a revised edition to Evolution of Theory and Crisis. But these short little books, as you mentioned, that, that fill in the details about just the extraordinary ways in which the earth is suitable for life, but that the universe itself seems so so uh, intricately arranged and precisely arranged for the existence of complex life. Are there some other things maybe just, you know, 
weird discoveries or <laughs> significant discoveries or quirky things that we found that it seemed to actually confirm the argument that we make in the book. Yeah. So uh, another example is a mineralogist named Robert mm -hmm. Hazen at the Carnegie Institute, Washington, beginning in, in 2008, this is four years after we published The Privileged Planet, he uh, began exploring the evolution of mineral diversity mm -hmm. on Earth. And so uh, a colleague had asked him what kinds of minerals were present on the early Earth, this colleague being involved in origin of life research. So he wanted to know what kind of minerals would mm -hmm. be available for possible origin of life reactions. And uh, so that set him off on this question to explore just what mineral species were available at different times over Earth's history. That's a question that hadn't really been explored before, surprisingly. And starting off with about 420 species in the very mm -hmm. early Earth, it's risen up to now there are estimated to be about 5,000, wow. 5,000 mineral species. And he even wrote a book uh, on this a few years later, around 2012 or so, and I, now the name escapes me, but it's by Robert Hazen. And he compares the Earth to other planets in the solar system, Mars and Venus, and uh, the Earth has something like almost a factor of 10 wow. greater mineral uh, diversity than uh, other planets. So the Earth is quite exceptional in, in, in the presence of a wide, wide diversity of mineral species in the crust, uh, where they're widely accessible, or easily accessible, I should say. Uh, so not only are these mineral species very diverse, they are right. present where we can get at them, economically feasible, and so uh, that which makes, of course, modern technology possible. Uh, and so how is it that uh, we've had so many mineral species produced on the Earth? Well, one of the surprising conclusions is that life, life is responsible for something like two-thirds of all those wow. mineral species on the earth, concentrating those minerals into uh, concentrated ores in the crust through various processes like bacteria and such things. And it's, it's because of these concentrations of these minerals that uh, we can mine them and then make use of them. And of course, modern technology makes use of all kinds of metals, mm -hmm. like rare earths uh, and and powerful magnets, but even before that, of course, with copper and iron being important metals at different ages in, in human history and our development of technology, and of course, the fossil fuels being so important for fueling our, our world today, uh, almost all of these have been uh, involved in one way or another with life processes. There's an interesting feedback then. It's, you know, and this is, of course, our argument in the book is that yes. uh, the conditions for life, for habitability, correlate with the conditions for scientific discovery, that the things that life needs and the things that science needs meet in habitable planets. So where you get observers, they're going to find themselves in the best places for observing. And in this case, where you have all these minerals, which you need for all sorts of sciences and, and technologies, Life itself actually apparently helps contribute to the, to the formation of these minerals. The book I think you're, you're speaking of is The Story of Earth by Robert Hazen. Yeah. That's it. Um, yes. And in fact, he's got a, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good book. And I had, had forgotten about it until you mentioned it back in, I think, 2011. But, you know, he's got a chapter called The Boring Billion, The Mineral Revolution, things that, uh, in many ways, I mean, because we have a section in the book where we talk about the, the diversity of minerals, the importance of not just having the diversity of minerals, but having them sort of accessible to us right here on the surface, how important that is. Uh, but this book, you're right, it came out years later. And it, it, it's funny, there hadn't been 
uh, really a survey of this until then. And so far as I know, I don't think Hazen knows anything about our book and probably would disagree with some of the details, but nonetheless, it's sort of confirming. That reminds me of another article, and I think it was by Lawrence Krauss. Correct me if I'm wrong. I can remember someone who's very much an anti-ID person and a materialist talking about something that we talk about in the book, that we live not just at the best time in the history of the cosmos for life, that is the cosmic habitable age, but we also live at the best time for being able to access and to measure the cosmic background radiation. Was it Krauss or someone else that actually mentioned this as well? It was Krauss. Some years after the so book yeah, came he, out, right? Was, yeah, just, just a couple of years after it came out. I can't remember the year now. It was either 2005 or thereabouts. It was very close to the time just after the book was published. He published a journal paper, an astronomy journal, uh, uh, about cosmology and commenting on the cosmological constant, which is uh, what's the explanation for, or at least the, the mm-hmm. label uh, for <laughs> explaining why the universe is accelerating, which is still a mystery. And uh, so he, he commented on just what a special time we're living in in the history of the universe. The, the whole field of cosmology is possible pretty much because we can measure uh, so much around us. We can measure all these other galaxies around us and see them. They're still relatively close enough to, and bright enough so we can detect them pretty easily. And most importantly, we can still measure and detect the microwave background radiation, which is probably the single most important evidence that the universe had uh, a mm-hmm. beginning in a hot, dense state. Uh, there's this relic radiation left over from the early history, uh, early times in the universe. It's still with us today. It's terrible still permeating mm-hmm. all of space, this radiation. And uh, he argues that in the distant future, after galaxies had receded away from us at ever-increasing speed because they continue to accelerate away from us, also the microwave background radiation gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And it gets dimmer even faster than we had thought previous to this discovery of the universe accelerating because it's this acceleration of the universe is kind of pushing everything away from us ever faster and it's causing space to expand, which is causing the microwave background radiation to dim faster and faster. And so we're living at quite a special time to, to do a cosmology, to learn that the universe had a beginning in, in the future. Not, not astronomically right. speaking, yes, it is billions and billions <laughs> of years from now, but it, astronomically speaking, that's still not really that long from now when it's going to be extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, to detect the microwave background radiation, the single most convincing piece of evidence that there was a beginning to the universe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine a, sort of a more fundamental question you could ask than, well, is, has the universe always been here or did it, it begin to exist? And I mean, of course, it does sound, okay, well, so we have still a few billion years to be able to detect these things. But as you said, in astronomical timescales, because astronomers that think about the distant future, they talk in timescales from T to equals zero to 10 to the 150 years out, that is 10 to the 150th power uh, years in the future when, you know, things get, would get very boring (laughs) at that point. But if you think in terms of that size scale, then, you know, five or 10 or 15 billion years is actually just a tiny sliver. And it turns out that tiny sliver is of course the the most habitable sliver of time uh, in the history of the cosmos, but also the most discoverable. That is the best time for doing science. So it's the time when scientists can exist in the universe is also the best time for doing science, which is, of course, sort of confirmation of our argument. Well, how about habitability? I mean, I know you've written and thought about this. Do you have another example about habitability itself? I do. So uh, there was an author, a scientist named David Waltham, 
who published a book just a few years ago, uh, I think it was about four years ago, called Lucky Planet, Why Earth is Exceptional and What That Means for Life mm. in the Universe. This is kind of along the lines of Rare Earth, published by my former colleagues uh, Don Brownlee and Peter Ward back in mm -hmm. 2000, about four years before he published The Privileged Planet, that he argues that the number of things have to go just right to have a planet as habitable as the Earth. And uh, he's also published some papers in astronomy journals. Uh, there was one particular paper he published, I think it was either the year we published The Privileged Planet or the year after, about the moon. And um, it was a nice confirmation of uh, our discussion on the first chapter of The Privileged Planet, which is on solar mm -hmm. eclipses and how the moon is just so perfectly matched on the sky to the, to the size of the sun. And uh, he presented a paper, and I believe it was Icarus, Journal Icarus, and he also discusses it in his book, Lucky Planet, mm -hmm. where he knows that our moon is fine-tuned for us to be able to be here on the Earth. It's for climate stability in particular, and uh, that the moon, if it were just a tiny bit bigger, uh, it would have destabilized mm -hmm. the Earth. So climate would have been much more variable. So it's an incredible amount of fine-tuning to the, to the size of the moon. So it kind of confirms this... Um, statement that we made in, in the first mm -hmm. chapter that the moon has to be about that size to have its life-friendly features, but also to produce solar eclipses. And this is a nice confirmation of uh, the, the connection between uh, our being on the Earth, being able to exist as observers, and, and the particular uh, size uh, of the moon on the sky. Well, the, the great thing about that confirmation is that so far as I know, he again, he's not an ID proponent. And in fact, it's, I don't think there's any evidence that is, do we even know if he knows of our book or of our argument? Is he even aware of it? I don't, I don't know. No, I don't either. I don't but it, it seemed to yeah. be sort of an independent realization from someone that's probably not even philosophically oriented toward our position. But it's definitely an exciting time to be alive and to be able to uh, to be to be a scientist and to be able to uh, you know to discuss the kind of implications of these discoveries. Well, I, I want to mention here before you go, of course, that uh, you and I are planning on doing a 20th year anniversary edition of the Privileged Planet in 2024, where we talk about all this new evidence and and more than we've been able to talk about here. Uh, but 2024 is, if I'm not mistaken, that's also the next time the the United States will get a total solar eclipse. Is it not? That's right. That's right. It's uh, I, I'm trying to remember. It's either April or May of that year, and it's going to go through Dallas, going to go through Indianapolis, uh, so, so central U.S. So it's going to be even a bigger eclipse than the one uh, we had. In That's great. Well, and it just happens that that will be the 20th anniversary of the release of the Privileged Planet. So by making the statement publicly, I think we're committing ourselves here to do, to do it for sure. So we still got, to, not too worried, we still got several years to work on it. But well, Guillermo, thanks so much for joining me. That was a pleasure. Thanks. And thank you listeners for joining us. This is Jay Richards with ID the Future. From jumping insects with real gears to the strange world of carnivorous plants, the details of the natural world reveal planning and purpose. In his new book, Foresight, Brazilian scientist Marcos Eberlin shows how the mantis shrimp can pack a deadly punch and how a tiny protein in a bird's eye may work just like a GPS. You can join Marcos Eberlin as he uncovers a myriad of artful solutions to major engineering problems in chemistry and biology. Find out how these solutions point beyond blind evolution and point instead to the designing ability of a mind and a mind with foresight. Order on Amazon or visit discoveryinstitutepress.com to get your own copy of the book Foresight. 
Get Everland's new book from Amazon or at discoveryinstitutepress.com slash foresight. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.